The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, Again, just a welcome to any visitors that are with us today, especially the first-time visitors. Uh, Always a delight to have new folks with us. I want to bring you up to speed. We are going through the book of 1 Corinthians in your New Testament, and we started in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 16 and just go through it the way Paul wrote it and the way he intended it to be read and studied and applied. And that's in consecutive order, so that's where we're at. We are continuing on. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're looking at the section of verses 18 to 25 just to kind of give you the big picture. We went through some background on Corinthians, then we did Paul's introduction of verses 1 through 10, and now... Uh, and then Paul gets right into the issue at hand, the main problem that the Corinthians had. Paul was a pastor there in Corinth and left and been gone about three years, and he heard some word about troubles they were having in Corinth without his leadership that had developed. And the main problem that the Corinthians had in their local church was division with one another, uh, Christians in a local church who weren't getting along. I'll say it again. Christians in a local church who had problems getting along. And so... That goes on in every local church. That goes on in GBF, believe it or not. Maybe you haven't been around with us long enough to figure it out. Um, And that's why God's Word is so beautiful, because it's applicable to us no matter where we live, when we live in history. There's always specific lessons we can take away from God Himself. So uh, that is the problem at hand in Corinth. People, Christians, professing believers were being divisive and forming these little cliques and groups and uh, so that's where we're at and then Paul rebukes them and says this should not be in verses 10 through 17 and then he wants to provide a solution for them kind of a roadmap to success to get out of the pit of division that they were in and okay that's wrong you need to change your thinking now here's how you do it and so that's what we're on so actually chapters the rest of chapter one and chapter two is Paul's practical roadmap of how to implement uh, success and overcome this disunity that they have among themselves. So that's where we're at in Corinthians, and we'll just keep plugging away. Uh, we took, we introduced verses 18 to 25 last week, because 18 and 25 needs to be read together. It's a unit of thought. It's like a paragraph. So uh, that's why we're taking it uh, as one unit. Last week I introduced it with just kind of five points to hang your thoughts on, because uh, there were some general themes that weave it together. We got through the first point last week in 18. Through 25, and today we're going to introduce at least the second point. I don't know how far we're going to get yet. Uh, you mean we're not going to get through all the way to verse 25? Not necessarily. Uh, why? Well, because a couple of reasons. First Corinthians here, this section, this is not narrative. Like the Gospels that talk about Jesus where he would tell a story, those stories are narrative. And so Jesus could give several paragraphs, and he's really making only one point. Those are pretty easy to go through big chunks of Scripture. And they're, they're really simple to understand and apply. This is radically different in terms of the literature. Apostle Paul's writing an epistle. It's a letter. It's not narrative. It's not stories. Uh, he's dealing with a complicated topic. And also, just the nature of it, because it's not narrative, and the way the Apostle Paul writes, and this is divine revelation, every single verse, every single phrase almost through this makes a very significant point. And as Paul's going through 18 to 25, not only are there very significant points that we need to stop and pause on and highlight and not just rush through it and, well, forget that one. Here's his point, rush through it, forget it, go on to the next one. I don't want to do that. 
but also regarding the Apostle Paul and the way he writes in his epistles as God led him through his spirit is not only is it meaty, but some of it's very difficult to understand. I mean, at first blush, reading through 18 through 25, the average Christian would have to stop and scratch their head and say, wow, I don't, what does that mean? Or I'm not quite sure what that means, Paul. And so we got to go slow because we want to understand the Scripture. We don't want to just fly over it and be superficial. And I'm reminded of what Peter, the great apostle of Jesus and the great apostle to the Jews said in Second Peter when he began hearing about the Apostle Paul's ministry. And he began actually getting Paul's letters. And Peter, the head apostle, he starts reading John's or, uh, Paul's letters and epistles. And he's like, wow, this guy is hard to understand. Even Peter said that. So if you're asking, why are we slowing down or going so slow at this pace? Well, because we're not in narrative, we're not in the Gospels, and we're dealing with some pretty meaty and difficult stuff. And we need to learn from it and apply it to our lives. So hopefully that's helpful for you. So let's go ahead and look at 18 through 25. And just again to review the context very specifically, uh, Paul immediately addresses the problem in Corinth. That's why he's writing this letter. He's not writing this letter because they're doing well. He's not writing this letter just to say hi. He's not writing this letter to compliment them. He is writing this letter because they have problems. And he is trying to fix their problems immediately. And so their main problem is division. Verse 10, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then uh, verse 12, there is quarreling and dissension among you. So that is the main problem problem and it is open it is manifest it is public you can see it you can hear it it is audible it's trickled out the church the neighbors know about it it's become the testimony and the reputation of the corinthian church so they need to cease and desist and it needs immediate confrontation that is the problem the division and then paul says the first you need to stop being divided and then he gives kind of his uh, first solution to the problem, and that is in verse 10. And that's, they need to think the right way. You Christians are behaving the wrong way because you're thinking the wrong way. That is just a universal maxim, maxim of the Christian life. If you've got a Christian who's acting the wrong way, behaving the wrong way, the root of the problem is they are thinking the wrong way. Pretty much all of our behavior and even our words stem from how we think. So they are acting the wrong way. They're behaving sinfully. Why? Because they are thinking the wrong way. And that's why in the verse 10, the immediate remedy he gives them in summary form is at the end of verse 10 where he says, you need to have the same mind. And the word in the Greek there is the word for mind and how you think. Noose. You need to have the same mind. Quit thinking differently. Quit thinking antagonistically. Quit thinking suspiciously. Quit thinking conspiratorially towards one another. Think the same. And what he means by same is on common truths that unite you in Christ as a Christian. That will bring true unity and peace among the brethren. Think the same. Fix your thinking. Adjust your thinking. That's step number one. As a matter of fact, 18 through 25 is kind of a delineation of what Paul meant when he said, think the same way. Change your thinking. Think the right way. Here's specifically how you need to think. Here's how you're thinking wrong. Here's how you need to think. 18 through 25 is how you need to think and change your thinking because you're not thinking 
the way verses 18 to 25 say. You're thinking the opposite of what verses 18 through 25 say. So change your thinking. And everybody get on the same page in terms of thinking on truth. Do that, you'll eliminate the division among you. And it's a complimentary phrase at the end of verse 10. Think the same way, make the same judgments. It's kind of, they go together. So anybody here got messed up behavior and actions and words as a Christian? I do. The problem is it starts with your thinking and my thinking. Change your thinking. So now that takes us really to 18 to 25. Here's how we can start changing our thinking by quickest way to change your thinking and start thinking about the right things. Because you can only think on one thing at a time. Quickest way to change your wrong thinking is start thinking on the right things. And that means you need an intake of the right thing. You need an intake of the truth. That's what Paul wants to give in 18. So specifically, they are thinking the wrong way. It's creating divisions. And the specific thing that they're thinking in terms of thinking the wrong way in this context is they are thinking in a self-centered manner and they're thinking in a self-sufficiency. So their thinking is self-centered and self-sufficient. And as a result, it is self-destructive. Self-centered, self-sufficient leads to self-destruction. They don't get that. So Paul's going to try to remedy, counter their thinking with quit being self-centered in your thinking and think about others, other believers around you, and mostly the others, God, the Trinity, Jesus, the Savior. Get your eyes off self, get your eyes on him. So that's how he's going to try to readjust their thinking. That's self-centered, myopic thinking. And then also, this they had an air of self-sufficiency. They were infatuated with wisdom, with gnosis, and with the love of wisdom. Sophia, the love of wisdom. Because they were in a Greek culture where they were born and raised and taught that way. They were inbred that way to think like that, like Greek pagans thought that the highest aspiration in virtue in life to pursue is strip, uh, gaining more and more knowledge. The attainment of knowledge on a human level, an intellectual pursuit. That's what they thought. It was in their blood and they're reverting back to this after they became believers. Is this self-sufficient thinking that they could do it on their own. And Paul says later on that knowledge puffs up. So they knew a lot of things, were gaining a lot of knowledge. And as people attain and gain a lot of knowledge, if it's not tempered with humility and proper perspective, it puffs up with pride. And uh, a person like that just can't see straight because they're so myopic and consumed with how much they know. And they're proud of themselves. And the natural consequence is they look down their nose at others in a condescending, judgmental manner. You are not as good as me. You don't know as much as I do. You don't do it the way I do. And so that's what the Corinthians were doing. And actually, uh, it became manifest in their church through these little factions that, and alliances that they were forming, uh, at least in part around four significant Christians or three Christians and then Jesus himself, where Paul's addressing the Corinthian church. They became puffed up, self-centered. They became divisive. They became uh, cliquish. And uh, Paul identified at least four groups of division in their church, those who said, I am of Paul, and those that said, I am of Apollos, those that said, I am of Peter or Cephas, and then those who said, I am of Christ. And so Paul's combating that, saying this is a result of wrong thinking and divisive behavior and having eyes on self and being puffed up and being self-sufficient. Stop that, and we're going to nix that with biblical truth and undermine all that. It's the opposite of how you should be thinking 
the way you should be thinking is verses 18 through 25, where Paul simply presents very simply the Christian worldview. Crystallized or summarized in the gospel. So they need to be reoriented. They need to be recalibrated in their thinking. If you do that and readjust, then you'll begin to think the right way and then live the right way and interact with other believers the right way and then you won't be as divisive anymore. So they're thinking the wrong way about things. Uh, and again, specifically what they're thinking wrong is they're thinking, most think about it, they had four groups that were identified in their divisions. There was the Apollos group. He was the eloquent one. The, the Greek trained one in rhetoric and eloquence in his delivery. And he was polished. He had good content. He had accurate theology for the most part. And he was a partner in the gospel ministry. But they were just infatuated with his presentation and his impressive rhetorical skills. And so that was the Apollos group. And then we talked about how there was the Peter group. And that could have been because Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And so it could be uh, believing Jews in Corinth uh, that or wannabe Jews that were attracted to Peter because he was uh, the apostle to the Jews and they loved uh, Jewish culture and Jewish history because the apostle Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. That may have gone against the grain or maybe even made the hair stand up on the back of the neck of maybe some of the believing Jews in the Corinthian congregation thinking, wait, isn't Paul called the apostle to the Gentiles? And maybe they wrongly concluded, oh, he must not appreciate uh, the Old Testament. He must not appreciate uh, the rites and the sacrifices and the laws of the Old Testament and our Old Testament Israelite history and heritage. He's just all hung up with the new and the Gentiles and freedom and liberty in the New Testament. It could be that's what their thinking was. And then there was that other group uh, that said we are of Christ and all that Christ entails. So my point being, you've got at a minimum 75% of the congregation who are anti-Paul or 75% of the congregation in these factions who are not pro-Paul, which is totally ironic because Paul was the one who brought them the saving gospel. And the supermajority has turned into his nemesis or his critic. And so that's one of the ways they were thinking wrongly. And so he's going to remind them, wow, okay, I've got all these critics and I've got the smallest group of all the Paul group and 75% of the loyalties are in these other groups. And can I remind you of how God used me when I came into town to Corinth? I didn't come baptizing. I didn't come with Greek rhetoric to ooh and awe you, to woo and persuade you, to manipulate your emotions or even to manipulate your thinking into doing something. I came with the simplicity of preaching the gospel. And maybe you don't appreciate it now, but three years ago when I came, you did appreciate it because you embraced it, you believed it, you got saved. Have you forgotten? That is literally what he's doing in verses 18 to 25. He's reminding them of what saved them. It wasn't this Greek rhetoric. They got derailed in their thinking. And also he brings up this idea of what maybe was impressive to some of the believing Jews, and that is signs or miracles, signs, sameon is the Greek word he uses here, which refers to miracles, supernatural divine miracles that God invades the world with. They are visible manifestations and displays of extraordinary works done by Almighty God. The Jews were accustomed to this historically. 
seeing signs, wonders, mighty deeds to validate a legitimate spiritual ministry and a legitimate prophet of God. And apparently when Paul waltzed into town with just his meager, simple, little pithy gospel, he didn't have all the bells and whistles. He wasn't doing a miracle every step he took. The main thing he came armed with in his arsenal was the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, pure and simple. And when they look back, they're saying, wow, he didn't do a whole lot of miracles like Moses. I didn't see Paul walking on water in Corinth. That's what maybe some of the Jews were thinking. And then maybe some of the Gentiles or Greeks were thinking, yeah, and he didn't have that flowery, sophisticated, impressive, trained in the schools of Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, flowery speech. He had this simple approach. Simple approach. In Acts 17, the same Greeks, the Epicureans and the Stoics, when they heard Paul's gospel, it was so simplistic, they called him an idle babbler. Idle babbler. You're, and it, they, which the Greek word is kind of interesting. It's a compound word, and it's you're an ignorant plagiarist. You got a whole bunch of stuff, but it makes no sense. Where did you get that? It's just a, it's a mongrel of information we never heard before. They didn't get it. So that was the natural Greek reaction. So with that, let's go ahead. That's the context. Go ahead and look at 18 to 25, where Paul's going to emphasize the cross, the cross, the cross, the gospel. And he, he doesn't use the word gospel. He uses the, a form of the word gospel in verse 17. But 18 to 25, he emphasizes the content of the gospel and he purposely puts the emphasis in the content of the gospel on the word cross or crucifixion. Crucifixion. Um, verse 17, the cross of Christ. We talked about this last week. When a Jew heard cross, they heard execution, criminal, weakness, death. Guilty as charged. When a Greek heard cross, they're thinking non-Roman citizen, same thing. Guilty as charged. Pathetic excuse of a human being. The scum of the earth. And here Paul's trying to say the savior of the world and the only answer to life's problems is crucified on a cross. That categorically goes against all natural sensibilities from a human perspective. And so that's what he starts off with. For the word of the cross. Boy, what you need to remember, Corinthians, is how we got here, how you came to know Christ, what I am all about, what the ministry is all about, what the Christian worldview is all about, what is the exact opposite of what the world thinks, the content of what God thinks. It is the cross of Christ and all that goes with it and all of its implications. So with that, let's go ahead and look at our outline again. The preeminence of preaching. One thing Paul does emphasize here is preaching. The act of preaching and the content of preaching. He uses the word caruso at least two times in this passage. Caruso. It's a very specific word. And it does refer to the method of delivery. We talked about it last week. It's one-way communication. It's giving a decree. It's speaking forth. It's giving a mandate. It is authoritative. It is dogmatic. It is binding. That's caruso. Proclamation. A herald. That's what I did. I wasn't a disputer. I wasn't a debater like the Greeks. I proclaimed Caruso preaching, preaching, preaching. And Paul says the priority is preaching, and that's not just the method, but more importantly, it's the content of the preaching. A preacher is a propagator. 
a preacher is not a pioneer. In other words, a biblical Christian preacher is not a pioneer. They don't make up new stuff. You shouldn't hear from the world or the Christian world especially about the latest pastor, the latest book, where it's praised for being, oh, it's innovative. I don't get excited when I hear about things being innovative. This church is doing it in an innovative way. They've got a message that's new and innovative, and I'm thinking, yikes. We don't want anything new and innovative. I'm not a pioneer. I'm a propagator of truth. Timeless, binding, unchanging truth, which is the gospel, which is the good news, which is about the crucifixion of Christ. And so Paul's phrase throughout 18 to 25 is the emphasis is on the crucified Messiah. That's why he calls in verse 18, this is the word of the cross, the word of the cross. The word, the, the, it is the speech and the content of the message about crucifixion, about somebody who was killed. Executed as a guilty sinner. Yes, Jesus was executed as a guilty sinner, although he was not guilty, he never sinned. That's the message of the cross. Verse 23, Christ crucified. Same point of emphasis, Christ crucified. So that's his theme throughout. And the, the world's reaction to this is they despise that message. So point number one, we're talking about the preeminence of preaching. That is the solution. That's what the Corinthians need to be reminded of. Uh, it is the work of God. It is not the work of man. The, the preeminence of preaching, and especially the preaching of the cross or the message about Jesus Christ. So last week we talked about point number one and the preeminence of preaching, and that is the Corinthians need to be reminded of the content of this preaching, and that was the cross of Christ, his crucifixion. Beautifully said by the Apostle Paul in the first part of verse 18. Let's go on to point number two, what the Corinthians need to be reminded of, of Paul, to undermine their self-centeredness and their self-sufficiency, get their eyes on God. And when they actually do look at themselves, they need to diagnose themselves the proper way as not great, but as lowly, as unworthy sinners. So point number two is uh, the candidates for preaching. After the content of preaching is the candidates for preaching, and that is the perishing and the saved. And actually, we'll just go with the first or the last part of verse 18, and we'll save verse 19 for point number three in just a second. So the candidates for preaching the message of the cross, uh, they are only two groups, the perishing and the saved. So by way of reminder, one of the main problems of division that was manifest in Corinth is they had multitudinous divisions. They had a minimum of maybe four or five divisions in their group. And dividing people into divisions was common in Paul's day. We do it in our day, but so much so, or even more so in the Roman culture, because they had forms of the caste system. And if you're familiar with the caste system in a society, it divides people into categories. Not everybody is equal before their maker. They are unequal. There are the haves and the have-nots. And so here are the Corinthians and the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles in the Corinthian Greek culture, they're also in Roman society. And so living in the Roman society, in a Greek culture, in a lost world, in that day, the Corinthians were privy to and a part of factions and divisions all over in society. That's just the way society was. Some common divisions in their day, in their factions in society, included uh, Roman citizens versus non-Roman citizens. Another common division was males versus females. Another common division where you divided people was slaves versus free men. And there was a huge contingent of slaves in Corinth. Paul says this later in Corinth. And, if, and people 
got their value and their worth derived from their status in society. Oh, I am a woman. I am inferior to a man. That's what they believed. So they're, also, they're false constructs. They're false categories. But this is really what they believed. And this is how they valued human life. And it was on a scale. And it was rated. Roman citizens, uh, Greeks versus Jews. That was another category of division. Citizens versus non-citizens. I said that one let alone in the Greek culture in particular, where you had way more divisions because you had all these divisions based on uh, schools of thought and philosophy. So that was multitudinous. It was countless. The school of Plato, the school of Euclid, the school of Socrates, the school of Aristotle, the school of this, the school of that, the school of that. And so they were accustomed to living life in divisions, in factions, looking down their nose at the other faction. This is what Paul is trying to counter. And so part of the countering that wrong thinking as Paul says, yeah, there are divisions in human life and human society, but there's only one true division and there are only two groups. It is the saved and the unsaved. It is believers and unbelievers. It is the saints and the ain'ts. That's it. And that's his point. The end of verse 18. He gets right into it. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are... Catch it. The word of the cross, this message about Jesus Christ being crucified as the solution of the world for sinners, that message, the gospel message... To those who are perishing, to those who don't believe, it is foolishness. The Greek word is moronic. It is idiotic. It is foolishness. You want to see that today in living color? Then turn on your television and watch Bill Maher, M-A-H-E-R, who's a talk show host, and he uh, is an atheist, and he is a comedian, and he mocks Christianity. That's what he does. What's the topic of his talk show? Mocking Christianity, the Bible, people who believe in Jesus, morality. He thinks Christianity is moronic. It is foolish. It is absurd from his point of view. Wait, did I just say, if you want to see that, turn on CNN and watch Bill Maher. Let me take that back. Don't watch him. My bad. Um, But he's a living illustration of it today. So the two categories, unbelievers and believers. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Literally, those who are, get this, being destroyed. Being destroyed by who? By God. Those who are being destroyed, that's the Greek word from the word destroyer. The the ones who are being destroyed by God because of their unbelief and the rejection of the Messiah. Perishing, that's too soft. It doesn't do it justice. It's foolishness to those who are being destroyed by God, God's enemies. But to us, Paul includes himself here. Beautiful. But to us, anyone who believes who is a Christian, who are being saved... The gospel, the word of the cross, is the power of God. So he uses these two words, foolishness, very specifically, to speak to anybody that is a Greek out there in the audience. And he uses the word power, very specifically, to speak to anybody who is a Jew, Jewish Christian in the Corinthian congregation. Because that was the word they were hung up on. The Jews were hung up on power. Power through signs, power through miracles. And the the Greeks were hung up on this wisdom slash versus foolishness thing. He's deliberately using these words. He uses them all throughout this text, speaking to these two possible audiences. But he said, you don't you got you guys got it wrong. You got four factions. There's only two believers and unbelievers. That's it. Those who are being saved and those who are being destroyed. And the ones who are being saved are the ones who have responded positively to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ones who are doomed and being destroyed are the ones who have rejected the message of Jesus Christ. Two categories. 
That's it. So Paul's trying to simplify things. If they would just think this way, you know, if we thought this way, this would help us with unity among the body of Christ. For example, practical exercise. Think right. Please don't say anything out loud. You will only embarrass yourself. But right now, think in your own heart of somebody who is a Christian, as far as you know, that you have a problem with. They have done something wrong against you or you just plain don't like them. If you thought of somebody, shame on you. But I set you up for that. But the reality is there are times where every Christian has that. We are troubled, right, by we're locking horns with a fellow believer. And it actually could be somebody that we love or know or have a relationship with. But our thinking is wrong. It needs to be adjusted. So one of the remedies is, boy, this person who is a fellow Christian, I am a Christian. They're, I'm angry as can be at them. We aren't getting along. We are mad. Tensions and emotions are high. But in the big scope of things, from, from God's perspective, they're actually not my enemy. They are in the family of God just as much as I am in the family of God. Jesus loves them just as much as Jesus loves me. God saved them just as much as God saved me. They are a sibling in the family of God with equal standing just like me. You start thinking that way, then all of a sudden you're up here, they're down here, and then now they are on equal footing with you. As a matter of fact, not only they they are not your enemy, they are on your team. We forget who the enemy is. Satan is the enemy. The opposite of truth is the enemy. Deception and sin is the enemy. Not your fellow believer. So this has practical implications of what Paul is doing is reminding the Corinthians, forget all your man-made factions that aren't even true among Christians. There's only two. It's believer and unbeliever, and that's it. And if you just start looking to the left and the right in the Corinthian congregation, that's my brother, that's my sister in the Lord. We're all one family. We're all committed to one another. We need to forgive each other. We need to persevere. We are in this together. We are on Jesus' team. By the way, that is the winning team, and the enemy is Satan and all that is related to him. Boy, if every Christian thought that way, you'd probably eradicate division in your church and in your home. But it's beautiful. Just a couple of verses I want to give you. I'll only read one, but I'll give you another reference of this idea that there are only two categories in the world, believers and unbelievers. Uh, look at John chapter 3. While you're going there, you could go to 1 John chapter 4 where, and verse 6 where the Apostle John says the same thing. Uh, there's believers and unbelievers. And then you can go to 2 Corinthians 6. We've read that one before. Don't be unequally yoked. For what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What does righteousness have in common with unrighteousness? What does Christ have in common with Belial? What does, so he's saying, what does a Christian have in common with a non-Christian? So there are only two categories of people in the world. That's it. So John 3, Jesus said the same thing categorically or uh, in john chapter 3 uh, john the baptist or whoever is talking here john the apostle wrote this down and he says in verse 36 he who believes in the son has eternal life so here are the two categories of people there are those who believe in jesus there are those who have eternal life there are those who don't believe in jesus there are those who don't have eternal life that's it so he who believes in the son has eternal life but he who does not obey synonymous with believe in the parallelism there but he who does not obey the son will not see life see that's it two categories those who believe 
those who don't. Those who are saved, those who are not. And get this. The unbeliever, the wrath of God, present tense, abides on him. The wrath of God presses down and weighs and follows on the unbeliever. Any unbeliever, somebody who doesn't know God right now, the wrath of God is is on them, pressing down on them. It's not, well, if you're a believer, someday you're going to face the wrath of God. No, right now, the wrath of God is pouring down on you. It is haunting you. It is chasing you. Jesus is trying to use it to woo you to repentance. The believer does not have the wrath of God weighing down or pressing down on them. The believer has, get this, the blessing of God on them. They are sanctified. They are, there's an umbrella of protection surrounding you, according to 1 Corinthians 7, if you're a believer. I like the psalm that says, for the believer, the angel of the Lord, which could be Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, the angel of the Lord encamps around his beloved. In the spiritual world, if you are a Christian, you have the angel of God himself encamped around you. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. The unbeliever does not have that. They don't have the protection from the angel of God. They have a demonic angel who is their father in the wrath of God pressing down on them. That's it. Two categories of people. Whose team do you want to be on? Let's get on Jesus's team. Let's get on the winning team and let's consider everybody on the team, a partner and a teammate and a brother and a sister and a friend and a beloved and a dear one. And then let's look at the true enemy and call him and only him the enemy, Satan and sin and anything that undermines Christ. So who are the candidates for this message? Believers and unbelievers. And this is also liberating for you if you're an evangelist wherever you go, because we have people that are gifted with evangelism in our church, and there's a mandate for every Christian to be an evangelist. And you've got multitudinous philosophies and religions all over the world. And early on, when I got saved in college, and I began studying the religions of the world, and even there were all kinds of religions represented in my own personal family, and there was Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness uh, relative, and I had uh, siblings that were Hindus and New Agers, and ignorant Roman Catholics and an atheist slash skeptic. This is all just in my immediate family. So when I became a Christian, I'm thinking, wow, I've got to study and master all these religions of the world so that I can speak intelligently to every single one of them in a very specific catered way. And it became overwhelming. It's like, wow, this is a lot of information. I can't, I can't learn all this while I'm in college. No wonder my grades are going really bad. I'm not doing my math homework. I'm studying all of this stuff. But I could never master all that stuff in a lifetime. And then I, I was liberated over time. It took years, actually, to realize, no, you don't need to master the philosophies and all the religions of the world to evangelize to anybody that's lost. Everybody that's lost is pretty much in the same place, right? They're an unbeliever. They need Jesus. And the main thing they need is the gospel. So that helps us with those two categories. There's the saved and the unsaved. And we don't need to make up all these categories among believers so that we can most effectively cater to them. What does a Muslim need most? Versus what does a Hindu need most? Versus what does... Uh, an agnostic, intelligent person who's an evolutionist here in the Silicon Valley need most over and against a Muslim. All of these people not being saved. I'd, I'd say the same answer. They all need the gospel. Pretty simple, isn't it? They need God's mercy. They need a softening of the heart. They need their eyes and heart to be illuminated and opened by the Spirit of God. And the content that they need is just simply the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of the cross. Jesus Christ pr- uh, crucified and risen from the dead. That's what they need. That's Paul's point. 
the candidates for preaching. So today, apply this to your own life. For you, so that you might preserve unity in your own home, starting there, your own marriage if you're married, among your siblings if you have some. And then as you interact with other believers, especially starting in the local church, applying this truth of these only true, two true categories, believers and unbelievers. And then also, we can apply this outwardly as we go out into the world realizing, oh, it's pretty simple. It's just believers and unbelievers. And the unbelievers, they just need the, the gospel, the seed of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. And the Spirit of God will work on their hearts and lead them sovereignly. It's a beautiful truth. That's enough. That's enough for us to contemplate, to think about, to meditate on, to ask God's Holy Spirit to apply it to our life and then try to apply it to others as we live from day to day. So I'm going to stop there after point two, the candidates for preaching of the cross. Practical takeaways from this are doing some self-evaluation right now. At the end of the book of Corinthians, and it'll probably take me five years to get there. So Wait, why are you laughing? It'll probably take me five years to get there, so I want to say it now so you don't have to wait till then. At the very end, Paul says, examine yourselves. He's talking to the Christians or Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself to see where you're at in the faith. And that's, you know, that's what we need to do every single week with every single message in Corinthians is stop. Okay, what did we just hear? What did we just read from Paul? Stop, pause, meditate, spend the day, spend the week in our prayers, evaluating where we are at in light of what we just heard and asking God and his spirit to evaluate us, to help us examine ourselves where we're at in the faith in light of what we just heard. So that's our challenge today. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Let's examine our own hearts of what we believe about the primacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have we applied it to our own life and believed it and embraced it? Are we truly born-again Christians? Do we truly know God? Do we truly prize the gospel message over the wisdom of the world? Are we applying that in our own marriage, our own family, with our own siblings, in our own life? Is there somewhere where I need to leave this place today from church and go make things right with another believer? That's practical application, right? Jesus said, do it quickly in Matthew 5. Do it quickly. Make friends quickly with your enemy. And then also applying this as we have opportunities, we go out into the world in evangelism, just little seeds of the gospel, wherever it is needed. Well, with that, let's go ahead and prepare our hearts further for the opportunity we have with communion. And so... Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the inspired rendition given by God to Paul of the meaning of communion. Taking communion doesn't forgive any of your sins. Taking communion uh, doesn't get you a better chance of getting into heaven. Taking communion doesn't make God like you better or more. Uh, Taking communion is a gift from God, a gift from Jesus specifically to his church. It was to be an ongoing regular practice that the body did together corporately, allowing us to actually physically and tangibly get involved in an act of worship. And it's a symbol or actually a living metaphor of a greater reality. That's what communion is. So we have the little cup, we have the bread, and those signify 
the life, the death and life of Jesus Christ on the behalf of sinners. So Paul said this about it. He's talking to Christians. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. Also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as you take the cup and you take the bread, go back to your pew, have a seat, close your eyes, and remember Jesus. That's priority number one. Remember Jesus if you know him personally. Remember who he is and what he did for you, how he died for you as your substitute. He died to forgive you of your sin. That's the first thing we need to meditate upon in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And there, there's some more good news. Jesus is coming. This is supposed to be a reminder that Jesus is coming. He's on his way. He is returning. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So when you do take communion, do it in a worthy manner. Do it prayerfully. Do it in a self-reflective manner. Make sure you're a believer and know Jesus Christ. As you do it, if you have sin you need to confess, then confess it in your own, own heart right now in, while you're taking communion to the Lord and ask Him to forgive you. Acknowledge it. Don't uh, marginalize or be simplistic or superficial about communion is what he's saying. Verse 28, But a man or woman or child who knows Jesus, who's taking communion, they must examine themselves and in so doing, then eat the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So in other words, Boy, make sure you're a believer when you take communion. And make sure you're dealing with your sin when you take communion is what that means. So that's what we'll do. Some of the Corinthians weren't doing that. They were, uh, they had a pretty flippant attitude about communion sometimes. And as a result, Paul says in verse 30, for this reason, many, many, not a few, many in the Corinthian congregation were weak and sick physically. And a number of them uh, went to sleep or died because they were being flippant about communion. Does God do that today? I think he does. But it's his sovereign choice to do so. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So really, communion, taking the Lord's Supper, it's really a celebration. It's supposed to be a celebration of good news, great realities. It's a somber reality, though, because we are dealing with ourselves as sinners before a holy God. And it's a time to worship Jesus, thank him. So I'm going to invite you now, and we'll break up. We'll have half the folks come up forward as you've done, and then half we've got uh, tables uh, or communion in the back, and we'll go ahead and partake. And then, so take your cup and your bread, as I said. Go ahead and go back to your seat. Hold on to that when we're all ready. Uh, we will partake together. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.